This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is June 16th, 2022. Would you be at all surprised if I told you inflation was a global concern? Probably not. We've all felt its pinch, and central banks around the world have taken action to address rising inflation, though with mixed results. That was going to be the topic of today's episode. Specifically, the European Central Bank doing an about-face and ending a negative interest rate policy that's been in place since June 2014. But on Wednesday, as we were recording, the ECB held an emergency meeting to address another side effect of inflation, rising bond spreads across the Eurozone. And that coupled with the Fed's announcement that it was raising the Fed funds rate by 75 basis points, that's the highest in 30 years, well, that changed the focus of the episode somewhat. So I hope you'll bear with us for what turned out to be an interesting fire drill, but a fire drill nonetheless. So let's start with the ECB. What happened? Why are bond spreads important? And What does it mean for the ECB's interest rate normalization that it announced earlier this year? In fact, just a few weeks ago. For starters, let's turn to our first guest and friend of the pod. My name is Andy Sparks. I work in the MSCI Research Solutions Group with a particular focus on fixed income and multi-asset class solutions. The ECB has 19 different countries that they need to be very cognizant of. And they need to be particularly sensitive to how ECB policies may have a differential impact on, on different countries. And so the key word lately has been fragmentation. And as the, um, as the markets have begun to anticipate uh, scaling back of the ECB's asset uh, purchase program, We've seen different markets react differently. So we've seen yields on Italian government bonds going up quite a bit more than on German government bonds. So, for example, since since the beginning of February, um, the spread between those two countries has widened 110 basis points. And it's not isolated to just Italy. It's, it's affecting other countries as well, including Spain, which has, had, uh, has seen its, its government yields go up 70 basis points in the 10-year government bond sector versus um, German bonds. And so as the ECB scales back its bond purchases and tapers its programs, um, the market concern is that countries with a higher debt burden will face a disproportionate increase in yields, which in turn could make it even tougher for these countries to pay back debt. And I think in the back of a a lot of people's minds, it, it does stir memories among market participants of the Greek sovereign bond crisis from 10 years ago, which posed some real existential um, threats to uh, to the stability of the Eurozone. And we're nowhere close to the level uh, now that spreads were back then, but ECB policymakers do seem to be very focused on acting against the potential for fragmentation. So the ECB has this huge portfolio of government as well as corporate bonds that they've purchased Um, in their asset purchase programs over the past few years. And these bonds are maturing, and the question is what to do with the principal on that. So the ECB has basically said that they want to be very flexible 
in in how those those um, those redemptions are are reinvested back into the portfolio, and effectively they're saying that they they want to reduce uneven effects from a general pullback of monetary stimulus, and so the idea that they want to they want to avoid having differential effects, and I, I suspect what they will do with the fragmentation policy is they'll they'll put concrete detail on that general statement of avoiding differential effects across countries. So the ECB, in its effort to fight inflation, has announced that it's going to end the era of negative interest rates and also left the door open for flexibility in the future. At the same time, bond rate spreads among Eurozone constituents are widening, something that raising rates clearly doesn't help. So my question was, how can the ECB fight both of these trends at the same time? It's really tough because fundamentally, the ECB cannot control the debt level of countries. And that's sort of, it's, it's really from this, the, the core origin of the um, Eurozone itself. There were 19 distinct countries that are allowed to have different fiscal policies but they have a common monetary policy and reconciling those those two two different classes of policies is very difficult and so there there are and were rules about um, how large government deficits can be relative to gdp among members of the eurozone but these rules at at times of of market stress have, have been um, sometimes suspended and um so that it, some might argue that the ECB is caught between a rock and a hard place here. I definitely don't want to be alarmist. I don't want to say this is going to be a, another sort of Greek crisis that we experienced 10 years ago. But I think there is a little bit of concern that a, a bad situation could worsen. During the Greek crisis, then head of the ECB, Mario Draghi, famously said that the central bank would do, quote, whatever it takes to keep the Eurozone intact. Just this week, a prominent member of the ECB's executive board said there is no limit to the support that the ECB will provide to the Euro. And these anti-fragmentation tools might be an example of that. So the ECB is still very much um, uh, saying that they are going to be very supportive There's a fly in the ointment here, though. Things are different than they were 10 years ago, and that could affect what the ECB is actually able to do to help with today's crisis. If you roll back 10 years ago to the time of the Greek crisis, 10, 11 years ago, inflation in the eurozone was very low. And so you might argue that the ECB had a lot of dry powder that they could deploy um, if needed. Because they they had the the nice situation where if anything inflation was too low below their their two percent inflation target, whereas this time we're in a very different situation. Of course, inflation is extremely high; it's much higher than two percent. For a bit more on the inflation picture, enter our second guest. I'm Thomas Verbraken, and based in the Budapest office, I'm part of the risk management solutions research team. Inflation both in the U.S. and Europe is now above 8%, which is, um, which is really, really high, I would say. U.S. inflation seems to be rather driven by high demand. We also see a very 
tight labor market in um, in the US. Whereas in, in Europe, the labor market is weaker and also household consumption is um, not yet back at levels we saw before the, the pandemic. So where US inflation is more driven by high demand, um, I would say European inflation is rather driven by supply side shocks um, like the higher energy and, uh, and food prices. Energy and food shocks that stem from Russia's war in Ukraine. When you look in, in the Eurozone at the spread between headline inflation and core inflation, um, so when you take out energy and food, well, that spread is, um, is, is still high. So um, we see a spread of 4% between um, those two inflation numbers. Um, but the question is, how much will uh, you know, these higher energy and, and food prices trickle to other segments of the economy? And, and then, of course, um, the question on everyone's mind is like, how, um, how will these you know, higher prices, the high inflation, disruptions of the um, Russia-Ukraine war, how will they uh, impact economic growth? Because there is the risk that these higher energy prices will trickle through to um, you know, the other segments, like the services industry, for example. So these are all reasons to you know, normalize monetary policy and go away from the loose monetary policy we've seen in the past decade. There are a lot of similarities between the Fed's challenge and the ECB's challenge. And now, just moving down um, a, a level, you know, the practical realities is there are differences. And I'd say a lot of the uh, lowered economic forecasts we've seen for growth this year, of course, has been related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the spike up in energy um, energy prices. And the U.S. is a, is a major energy producer. Um, we're largely self-sufficient from an energy perspective. And that is not true for much of uh, the Eurozone. And so the U.S. is not dependent on Russian energy imports. A lot of the Eurozone is. And so just from a growth perspective, that helps out the, that helps out the U.S. versus the Eurozone. And because of that, the U.S. may have greater ability to take aggressive action in reducing inflation than the Eurozone. And so the U.S. has already begun raising rates. The U.S. has already announced when they're going to not just when they're going to actually start allowing the balance sheet to contract. So that's happening in real time now, whereas for the ECB, that has not yet happened. I would also add one other thing about the European version of quantitative easing. Uh, compared to the the U.S. version, is that the European um, asset purchase programs have played a very major role in the European corporate bond market, the investment grade market in this case. So they're a very very significant player, and that's been true for multiple years now. Whereas the U.S. announced a, a corporate bond purchase program um, in in the early days of the COVID crisis, but that was the example of of words being just as strong as actions because they never really had to purchase very much, but they they got it across that they were willing to, which provided a lot of um, calm to the U.S. corporate bond market. But the European market, the the explicit purchases by the ECB has been very large, and so another contrast between the eurozone and the U.S. is is actually the corporate sector, and. 
over the past few months, as governments have begun talking more about more and more about removing um, monetary stimulus, just as we've seen in the in the sovereign um, government bond market in Europe, we've seen spread widening of uh, some of the the countries with higher debt burdens, such as um, Italy and Spain, as we've seen their yields go up more than than say in, in stronger um, credit countries such as Germany. We've also seen that in corporate credit spreads, the eurozone spreads have widened more than in the U.S. markets, and so that's another um, sort of constraint, if you want to call it, that the that the ECB may be facing. Yet another challenge for the eurozone is the euro's weakening position against the U.S. dollar. At the time of this recording, the euro was nearly at parity. FX rates are affected by inflation, but they're also affected by just the level of yields. And if you look at real yields, and those are driven um, at the longer end of the curve from uh, from inflation-protected securities, in the U.S. those are known as TIPS, those yields have gone up very significantly in the U.S. Those real yields are after-inflation-adjusted yields. So, this has been a, a terrible environment and a terrible year for bonds. And uh, the one bright side, you might say, it's really the other side of the coin, is that there has been this repricing, which which has made um, real yields on bonds higher. And it's actually made them more attractive as investment vehicles. And so one possible explanation for, um, for the, the relative strength of the dollar has to do with real yields have, um, have gone up quite a bit. And that may make U.S. investments more attractive than, uh, say, Eurozone investments. So bear with me. I'm about to use a word it feels like we've been using a lot this year. And to be honest, I'm beginning to feel a little bit like Chicken Little claiming the sky is falling, but here goes. Stagflation. Andy, are we there yet? The concern is that we may be getting closer to a potential stagflation opportunity, which is a very bad one for for capital market investors. And a lot of investment strategies that became popular over the past um, 20 years or so um, may not work as well going forward. The question is, are we in a new paradigm or not? I know what Andy's getting at here. MSCI has been doing a lot of research lately around how stocks and bonds behaved in the 1970s and early 80s, the last time we went through such a high inflationary environment. Back then, a negative shock in the equities market was usually concurrent with a negative shock in the bond market, something known as positive return correlation. But then something happened. We enjoyed this uh, period roughly starting around the year 2000, where that correlation, that return correlation was actually negative, which meant that in a multi-asset portfolio combining bonds and stocks, that um, there was a tendency when there was a big sell-off in equities that bonds, particularly U.S. Treasuries, would rally. And so bonds began to develop more and more of a reputation as a diversifier, as an anchor in multi-asset portfolios. So it's the anchor that when the equity market was going through bad times and sailing through stormy waters that the um, the bond market would would help stabilize portfolio returns. And I think there's a very big concern that um, with much higher inflation now, that that 
that bond equity correlation, that negative correlation may be weakening and potentially even turning positive. So this is an example of of how a change in a relationship like that could affect many, many, um, many strategies that have been popularized over the um, past 20 years, including strategies such as um, as risk parity. The next logical question for investors, of course, is how do I manage through this? What are the options? That's where scenario analysis comes in. So, Thomas, take it away. Well, in times of, of this high uncertainty, it, it is important to be prepared for, um, for everything, right? You, you want to plan for the worst. You want to hope for uh, the best. And scenario analysis is an instrument or tool that investors can, um, can really use to play out a variety of, um, of different outcomes and see how that would impact their portfolios. And I think in this environment where there's you know, so many uncertainty about inflation, about growth, um, about the central bank policy, um, it's important to you know, take into account that things can go different ways um, and you know, understand how that would impact your, um, your portfolios. We're having a couple of, um, of narratives um, in mind that we're, that we're working on, and they, they really make assumptions on, on the inflation um, outlook, on, on growth, and on central bank policy. And um, you know, we always try to have a range from optimistic scenarios to more pessimistic scenarios. And the most optimistic is the soft landing you know, in which inflation would uh, subside and economic growth can be can be strong. That's probably a scenario that not many people still still believe in, especially in, in the Eurozone. Um, we have a scenario where we have sustained inflationary pressure, but the ECB is reluctant to very decisively high rates, so the pace is not fast enough, uh, the, the monetary tightening is not fast enough, and they might, you know, not do that because of fears for for slowing growth. Um, so that's that's one scenario which focuses more on the high inflationary environment. Then we have one um, scenario where we're focusing on slowing growth, and that's a scenario where the ECB actually acts quite decisively, um, hikes uh, rates pretty aggressively, really can put a um, you know, a stop to the high inflation, but causes a short-term recession in the in the eurozone. And then the the last scenario, that's the one you you often hear you hear about, is the stagflation scenario where we do combine that high inflationary environment with the weaker growth outlook, and that's um, that's of course a, a scenario that's that's rather pessimistic, and that I think many market participants or many investors want to avoid. Can you give us a peek into some of the results, the, some of the implications for markets under under these four scenarios? Of course, like uh, I, I can give a, you know a broad picture. Like in in the soft landing, to be good for equities, nominal rates and inflation expectations would come uh, down relative to current levels, and the euro would regain some some lost territory against the dollar. Um, it's the most optimistic scenario. Then we have the sustained inflationary pressure scenario where equities would slightly um, lose um, inflation expectations and, and long-term rates would, would go up and the euro would weaken against the dollar. Equities would also lose in the slowing growth scenario, but their inflation expectations would, um, would come down. Um, and then in the stagflation scenario, 
that would really take the, the biggest hit on um, you know, a diversified portfolio of, of, of uh, equities and bonds that we usually model. Um, and in that one, equities would drop significantly, especially because those longer term implications of, uh, of the stagflation scenario, non-rates and inflation expectations would, would go up and the euro would also lose against the, against the dollar. So again, like as I highlighted before, the stagflation scenario would take the, the biggest toll on, on uh, a diversified portfolio of equities and bonds. And right on cue, there was that 75 basis point interest rate rise I mentioned as well as Chairman Powell's press conference that followed the announcement. So how did markets react? So the uh, markets have responded very favorably since the, the, um, since the press conference, and both the bond market and the equity market have rallied. So I think they took comfort in, um, in several things. So the, the actual 75 basis point increase, I think that was largely expected. But it was he talked about whether a 75 basis point rate rate increase going forward should be common or not. And he said no. But he also said that they want to be they want to be particularly transparent in this uncertain environment. And so he wants the Fed to be very, very transparent about the Fed's reaction function. And so he actually said for the next meeting, he said that the Fed is currently thinking about a 50 basis point increase or a 75 basis point increase. But he also said at the same time that don't think 75 basis points will become common. And so the market very well may have been interpreting that as as favorable, that um, the Fed is not panicking and is not talking about uh, very, uh, very aggressive um, rate hikes. Um, he also stated that he thought that over the past six months, as we all know, the um, financial markets have um, have traded off. And he actually viewed that favorably. He said that he feels that that is healthy. If you look at the bond market, we have seen this this huge sell-off, this huge increase in yields and with real rates going up very significantly. And so to the extent that the market, so to the extent that the Fed believes that that sell-off was partly what they were driving at, um, it may mean that some some market participants may interpret that as um, further sell-offs may be less likely. Um, so I actually think the market may have um, responded um, positively to that um, that statement as well, that um, the Fed feels that the general tightening of financial conditions um, has been healthy. What about going forward? What are the indicators the Fed will be watching? Chairman Powell and the Fed are looking very closely at data right now. The Fed has lots of models, but he really emphasized they are going to be looking extremely closely at inflation data, actual realized inflation data. And he talked about what what may have been some of the factors that had driven um, rates to extremely low uh, low levels um, over the past uh, 20 years. And he he talked about demographics sort of in aging population. 
He talked about um, globalization, and he also talked about technology. So I think in his mind, all of these factors sort of help to push rates lower. And now we have, um, so it's debatable going forward how strong of a role they will play. Um, but you also have a new set of factors. So he definitely called out the the uh, um, invasion, the uh, in the the Ukraine um, Russia war. He called out uh, COVID lockdowns. He called out generally higher um, energy prices, and so you know these are some of the battling things. So I think in his mind that the latter set of variables, let's call supply shocks. And he sort of posed the question, do we think those are going to be long-term or short-term? Previously, though, those types of things tended to be short-term. He's not pulling out his uh, crystal ball and trying to predict what will happen, but I think he genuinely was trying to let market participants understand the types of things that the Fed is looking at. But he said that in terms of uh, in terms of what the Fed is focusing on, he again, he repeated time and again, he talked about they want to see inflation coming down. So they thought that the um, in play inflation data that was released last week was it caught them by surprise. And they're trying to understand why they were caught by surprise. As of a week and a half ago, um, actually, as of a week ago, a lot of the Fed guidance was for 50 basis points today. But Solely because of that data that was released at the end of last week, they basically have modified their um, their views. One of the statements that stood out to me um, was him specifically saying, we're not going to be model driven. And, and I hadn't realized it at the time, but now listening to you, I'm wondering, is is the driver behind that? Could that be some of this humbling that's going on? Uh, with the Fed that you mentioned? I, I, I think so, yes. I think that um, being caught by surprise like they were with the um, release of last week's inflation data, that is a little humbling. And um, there are these potential regime shifts that probably in, in the back of the Fed's mind, they sort of are mulling over. Um, he also, more so than in the past, there are uh, he was talking about variables outside of the Fed's control, and he he particularly called out commodity prices um, more so than in the past. He called out commodity prices is something that's those are largely determined globally, and it's a bit outside of the Fed's control. And so, at the last uh, press conference he had in March, you know, he was talking about. I, he, he seemed more. He seemed more certain that the um, uh, focusing on monetary policy could 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 achieve the goal of lowering inflation and effectively engineering a soft landing. And this issue of soft landing came up um, several times during the press conference. And he he basically said it's not going to be easy. And also last press conference in March, he talked about. Um, potential positive labor market supply trends. So he talked about the labor force participation rate maybe going up, which would help labor supply, would help 
growth, but it would also keep wages low and, and therefore inflation um, a little little on the lower side. But he didn't mention that this this time around. So my general takeaway is that he um, just reading between the lines, perhaps he I think it's quite possible he's thinking a soft landing is is harder to achieve than the last time he met um, the press. But he also said there are pathways towards this soft landing. And so he definitely thinks that is a distinct possibility. At this point, you may be asking yourself, wait a second, weren't we talking about Europe? And we were, you're right. We're about to head back there, though, to be fair, we won't really be leaving the Fed too far behind. As I asked Andy, how might this 75 basis point move affect what the ECB does next? These central bankers pay a lot of attention to each other. And by being more aggressive like that, it, it gives the ECB perhaps a little more cover, if you want to call it that, for for pursuing a, a little more of an aggressive um, monetary policy. In general, the ECB's monetary policy, they've not been as aggressive at, as the Fed has been um, over the past few months, not not even really close, because they do have 19 different economies, and some have much softer economies than others. Some have a much higher um, debt burden level, and by uh, by enacting um, stricter monetary policy, by pulling back and reducing asset purchases, that has the potential to affect um, different countries in different ways. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Andy, Thomas, and to all of you, not only for listening, but for sticking with us as this story of ours took shape in what was pretty much real time. Next up on Perspectives, how does a company or an investor go about determining their carbon footprint? Now, this is an important question because before you can figure out where you're going, you have to figure out where you are. Consider that your deep thought for the day. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.